Our gospel reading today comes from Matthew, chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, as I'm sure you know, is March 7th. It's, um, for most of us, a pretty unremarkable day. It's not a holiday. It's not a three-day weekend. It's just another Sunday in March. But on this day 56 years ago, this was anything but an unremarkable Sunday in Selma, Alabama. On this day, March 7, 1965, nearly 600 civil rights marchers gathered in Selma and walked to the top of the Edmund Pettus Bridge for what should have been the start of their three-day walk from Selma to Montgomery. They were looking to demand the freedom for African Americans to exercise their right to vote. But on top of that bridge, they were met by the county sheriff who that morning had deputized every white man in the county over the age of 21 after being told by Governor George Wallace to take all necessary measures to prevent the march. He unleashed his forces on the unarmed marchers and troopers beat marchers with nightsticks, they fired tear gas at them and they charged them on horseback. The events of that day have come to be known as Bloody Sunday and it is remembered for the savagery of the attack. If you had asked someone the evening of March 7th, 1965, who had gained and who had lost, the answer probably would have seemed pretty clear. The civil rights marchers were bloodied and beaten. They barely made it out of Selma. They certainly were nowhere near their goal of Montgomery. The governor and his allies had delivered a crushing and violent blow. At the end of the day, it was the sheriff and his deputies who were still standing on that bridge. So if we were to assign victory that evening, there would have been no question of the winner. But we, of course, have the benefit of 56 years of hindsight, and so we know differently. We know that the nation was horrified at pictures in newspapers from that bridge, from the horrific violence perpetrated against people who simply wanted to ask the governor why he would not let them vote. We know that the events in Selma in 1965 were critical to convincing President Johnson to push forward the Voting Rights Act without delay. George Wallace and the sheriffs of Alabama are remembered as racist segregationists who are, at best, a cautionary tale of what happens when we are so blinded by prejudice that we lose sight of people's humanity. So who gained and who lost? Who sought the world and who sought their life?
Our passage from Matthew today picks up right where last week's left off. Growing up, I had a pastor who would throw like pop quizzes into her sermons and make sure you had been paying attention, and this would be a really great pop quiz opportunity, uh, but I'm not going to do that to you this morning, so there will be no quiz on what Pastor Brian preached. But if you recall, we looked at Peter's confession of Christ as the Messiah, followed immediately by his refusal to see or accept that Jesus would have to suffer and die. That just simply didn't fit into Peter's framework of what a Messiah should be. Peter was looking for triumph and victory, not humiliating death. How could that possibly advance God's ends? Not to mention, Peter was staking his life and livelihood to this guy. So if Jesus died, that probably wasn't going to go very well for Peter either. Jesus follows up that interaction with Peter with our passage today, where he expounds upon what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not particularly uplifting, at least not on the surface. Jesus is talking about denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, which, as Emily explained for us, it means willingly sometimes walking into a situation that might be hard. He says this thing that seems kind of confusing and contradictory. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. And you kind of think, what are you talking about right now? Then he asks today's million-dollar question. What does it profit people to gain the whole world but lose their lives? It's a rhetorical question. He's not expecting any answer from the disciples. And they, of course, do not offer him one. Although the passage says he's speaking to all of the disciples, I imagine he reserves a special glance for Peter at this point. Peter, who just a moment ago was so concerned with gaining and losing and with holding on to things that have never really been in his grasp. Peter, why do you want to hold on to the whole world but lose yourself? The word Jesus uses for life here doesn't just mean that your heart is beating and your vital signs are a go. He's speaking of life as something more essential to us as humans. It's the kind of thing that makes me me and it makes you you um, and all of us as God's image bearers. So when he asks, why would you gain the whole world but lose your life? He's not just asking, why would you risk dying for worldly gain? That answer probably seems obvious to most of us. Certainly, if you're risk-averse like me, I don't really even like roller coasters, so I'm not going to risk my life for profit anytime soon. What he's really asking is, why would you seek the gains of the world at the expense of yourself, of your integrity, your personality, your body and soul? Those things are harder for us to measure and more subtle when we lose them. I generally know when something is putting me at bodily risk. My sense of self-preservation is very well attuned. But it's not always as clear when those intangible things are on the line. Think about those folks in Selma in 1965. I am sure if you had asked George Wallace or the county sheriff or any of the white citizens who were deputized that morning, what are you fighting for? you probably would have received some answer along the lines of peace or security, 
maybe a way of life or the way things are done here. Um, They probably would have told you about how they were protecting their families or their businesses or just the order of the world as they knew it. They wanted to keep the world. They wanted their world. But in seeking it, they lost themselves. How many times have you or I made decisions because we wanted peace or financial security or safety for our families? I would hazard a guess that for most of us, those are primary motivators in our decision making. And those aren't bad ends in themselves. But at the heart of the gospel is a reminder that those are not the ultimate ends. Our ultimate end is Christ and him crucified. If we turn these penultimate secondary things into ultimate things, we end up losing ourselves. This is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. This is what Paul meant when he called the cross a stumbling block. We don't want to turn to the crucified Messiah. We only want the triumphant Messiah. We want our best life now. We want to be hashtag blessed. And of course, the promise of the gospel is that we do ultimately get those things. Although whether or not they look anything like we imagine they will is a little up for grabs. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus does reign in power. The kingdom of God is breaking in, even now, and one day we will stand before our God in the new heavens and the new earth. Unfortunately, we are not yet to that part of the story. We stand here in Lent, in the preparatory season. Some people consider this the real downer of the church year, and so there can be this tendency to just rush through it or ignore it so that we can get to our good triumphant Easter upper. But I would caution us against rushing through Lent. It's good to sit right here in this season. I think this season, perhaps more than any other on the church calendar, tells us the truth about the world we live in right now. Lent is the time when we get to pull back the curtain on the lie of living our best life now and all the striving and the hustling that that entails. And we recognize that the road to our best life lies not through the shiny happy land, which is where we really, really would like to be traveling, but it's through the dead body of a man hung on a cross by an empire. So just like Peter, this is not the story we want. And there you have it. That is the bad news of Lent. We live in a world and are subject to a world that is broken. And we have limited ability to make things happen in this world. As much as we really want to think we can speak good things into the universe or manifest the life of our dreams, we in fact cannot. We are finite and we are limited. We are dust and to dust we shall return. Things are not going to go the way we want them to. But, Friends, here is the good news of Lent. We live in a broken world, and we have limited ability to work in it. And so we can lay down our striving. We can just give it up. We can follow the path that Christ already has paved for us to the good life, 
through his death and resurrection. We can just breathe out the sigh of relief that is Lent. We are not going to accomplish the good life on our own. We do not have to bear the weight and the responsibility of that. Christ has done it. One of my best teachers on Lent is the American church historian Kate Bowler, who in her early 30s was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She wrote about her experience of being young and by all appearances dying in her memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And in it, one of the lies she exposes is that we have the power to make our lives anything we want them to be. And so she had this to say. What would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says we are limitless? Everything is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not yet here. What if rich did not have to mean wealthy and whole did not have to mean healed? What if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here. We are loved. It is enough. Friends, Jesus asks us again and again, what are you gaining and what are you losing? What are you striving for and what is it costing you? May we seek to gain Christ and lose our illusions of the good life. May we strive for the stumbling block of the cross. May we be people who bear the good news that God is here and we are loved. And may it be enough. Amen.